1: everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. I'm Samantha Lam, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Jonathan Daly about his new book, Crime and Punishment in Russia, a comparative history from Peter the Great to Vladimir Putin. So, Jonathan, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, I grew up in Indiana, in South Bend, Indiana. I did not study languages in high school. And after high school I traveled around Europe and I learned French and I did my undergraduate studies in Montreal. And then I got interested in Russian history. So I became uh, a linguist to some extent and, and and not really following in the footsteps of most of my friends uh, with whom I grew up. I don't know how I, how I became a scholar like this, but um, I uh, conducted my research for my doctoral uh, studies in Russia in 1990, 91. So luckily, I saw the Soviet Union at its tail end, I at least saw a bit of it before it collapsed.
1: Was it difficult to do archival research at that time? I know Larry said that they kept bringing him cookies and no documents.
0: Oh, well, they brought me both cookies and documents. It went wonderfully because, well, the first half of the year, I was working in Garf, and it wasn't the uh, State Archive of the Russian Federation. Um, which then was called the old-fashioned name because it was still the Soviet Union, uh, the Central uh, State Archive of the October Revolution. And at first it was going kind of slowly, but they had just begun to open up the archives for the materials I was working on, which uh, related to the Russian security police or political police, uh, which ended up being my first book. And um, it was going pretty well, and then I made friends with an archivist who was a middle aged woman, really, really friendly, who would invite me up into her inner sanctum of the archival repository. She fed me tea and cookies and just gave me piles of documents. And I was able to just work through in the spring of 1991 through a huge amount of material, which made it much easier for me to get the work done. But it was exciting because it was uh, many times I was using documents that had not been used before. And you could always tell because in the Soviet uh, system, they had everything very well organized and every uh, document called a diela would have a place where you would sign that you were using it. And I had many, many documents uh, with no signatures. So I knew I was the first person to see many of these really interesting materials.
1: That's actually still the case in provincial archives. I still get documents that I'm the first person to open them since like 1932, which is
0: cool. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I continued to go uh, pretty much every year uh, to Russia through the early 2000s and then went much less frequently, unfortunately, because of having uh, children and stuff like that. Um, And so I continued to work on the secret police and I worked on also uh, the history of Russian Pre-revolutionary institutions and in particular legal institutions and the law uh, published a number of articles on that and and then uh, some years ago um, Michael Melanson whom I met on my first uh, tour there in 1991, invited me to to write the book uh, Crime and Punishment in Russia in the Bloomsbury uh, History of Modern Russia series which has uh, just been getting going and so that was a great opportunity for me to synthesize a lot of the material I had been working on uh, for a number of years, and I'd published on as well, and try to pull it all together and sort of tell the story of, of the Russian law, and in particular, criminal justice, and how that system evolved in Russia over the past 300 years. So yeah, that's sort of how we got to where I am now.
1: So one of the things I noticed about your book that's different from other books that I've read on Russian criminal justice, I did my dissertation on the Stalin Constitution, so I have read a fair amount on the topic, is that you highlight the positive aspects of Russian legal achievements. Are there certain things that you think are really important that Russia did that put them out ahead of the pack?
0: Uh, Well, so um, among the most striking is the fact that under uh, Elizabeth Petrovna, who was the Tsarina of Russia, or the Empress of Russia in the middle of the 1700s, um, capital punishment was all but abolished. And that was something that was way ahead of any other country in the world. Now, the objection that can be brought uh, and is often brought uh, in regard to this event is the fact that people still were Um, indirectly executed uh, through the use of corporal punishment, which was a central feature of uh, Russian criminal justice from the time of Peter the Great, and even before that. Uh, So people would be flogged, and then they would potentially die. So that you can't say that uh, capital punishment was abolished completely, but there was this impulse that hadn't that was nowhere else. I mean, no other Europe. I mean, so one thing to keep in mind is that Russia was always, from the time of Peter the Great, certainly and even to some extent before that, constantly looking to the European countries to uh, as role models to get ideas about how to restructure their government, about how to reform uh, the the political system, and so. Obviously, uh, Elizabeth was influenced by some of the kind of humanitarian and reformist ideals of Europe, but she then took those ideals further than they had been or were taken in Europe at the time. So this is a pretty striking instance. Now, the fact is that Europe, that Russia, from that time forward, remained um, generally uh, more brutal in its punishments. Uh, Than the European countries, although all these countries were very brutal. <laughs> but um, uh, so the flogging continued. Um, there were things like uh, bodily mutilations as part of the punishment process that were only abolished in the early 1800s in Russia, such as nostril slitting, uh, which had been abolished uh, decades before. In Europe. So, in some ways, and indeed in most ways, Russia was lagging in terms of sort of reformist impulses and pro- policies. But in other ways, Russia pointed a direction that the Europeans eventually followed, but took uh, longer to get there. Another example of this <clears throat> would be uh, in the early Bolshevik era. So, the Bolsheviks come to power, and certainly they are uh, brutal. In their criminal justice, um, they, during, especially during the Civil War, they launch uh, the Red Terror, which results in thousands of deaths, et cetera, et cetera. And yet at the same time, in the uh, early 1920s, uh, the, it's the Bolsheviks who decriminalize um, homosexual acts among consenting adults. This is something that the... I mean, so they're inspired to some extent by European reformist ideals again, but they go. Farther and faster than the Europeans do um, on that matter, and it's the they European- also
1: decriminalize abortion, don't they?
0: Absolutely. So they de- decriminalize abortion as well uh, in 1920, the first country by far in the world uh, to make it legal. Now there are, you know, moments in which, in both those instances, the decriminalization of homosexual acts, the decriminalization of, of abortion are reimposed or reversed. In the case of the abortion uh, law, it was reversed in 1936 under Stalin. So, and, and, and today, of course, in Russia, um, the, the position, the treatment, um, the perception and laws on homosexuality are much more severe, strict, draconian than they are in any of the Western countries.
1: That's a relatively recent thing, though. I mean, I've been here for six years, and I've seen it get worse in probably the last five since the anti-homosexual propaganda law.
0: Right. You're absolutely right. So you're right. I mean, so this is – and so Russia from 1922 until 1936 had uh, liberal abortion laws, and no one else did in the world, (laughs) Right, and so then they reversed, and then the case of uh, of the position of homosexuality in Russia during most of the Soviet era, uh, homosexuality was uh, a crime, and then it was reversed again in 1991 with the fall of communism, and then as you as you point out, recently it has there's been a reversal yet again. So there's this kind of a relation. I mean, it's sort of. I think if you want to boil it down to an essence. It's that Russia, the Russian elites, the Russian educated elites, including Russian government officials, have consistently, both pre-1917 and after 1917, looked to the West, um, to the European countries, eventually to the United States as well, as role models in some ways, and as um, also examples of policies, polities, ideals, et cetera, not to follow. It just depends on on sort of the, the time and the question that we're talking about, right? So in the case of the Bolsheviks, they see the West, especially the United States, as very progressive technologically, uh, but also um, a menace uh, in ideologically uh, and immoral um, economically, right? And so so they take some things. And then there are also different uh elements within the Western countries. So they'll take the progressive uh, criminological theory in the early 1920s, for example, uh, which results in the Bolsheviks pushing policies aimed at differentiating uh, on criminal, differentiating guilt based on social background, right? So that's something that they'll take. But then the other uh, aspects of western jurisprudence such as uh you know independence of the courts is something that the bolsheviks are they're not motivated by and yet it was something that the pre pre pre-1917 reformers were motivated by right so you get in 1864 a uh liberalization of the judicial system known uh, as the uh, well uh, the judicial reform as part of the great reforms under Alexander II, that results in Russia having trials by jury that were among the most um, capacious, the most extensive. That is to say that jury trials in America are very broad and and almost every crime, almost every case uh, in court can require a jury trial. In most of the European countries, that's not the case. Uh, It's much more restricted. But Russia had somewhere in between the two where there were quite a lot of cases they could be brought before jury trials, right?
1: Now, did that apply to peasants? Because I know peasants weren't considered real people or not part of the judicial system in general up until the revolution.
0: Um, Okay, so uh, the the serfs, after they were liberated as part of the great reforms in 1861, um, were given special courts that were not part of the bigger judicial system. So the, the broad judicial reform affected only a small proportion of the total population, maybe 10 or 15%. The rest of the people who were peasants living in the countryside, although no longer serfs, had special local so-called volust or township courts. And those courts handled cases um, that the peasants brought before them, and, and, and lesser cases might be brought before uh, justices of the peace who were out in the countryside. So. In that sense, the peasants were outside the elite Europeanized judicial system, and the township courts were governed not by um, the law codes promulgated for the elite system, but rather by customary law, which sort of had to do with you know what people thought was fair. It was just kind of like tradition. Here's how we do things, and judges in these Volus courts had to know what the sort of local traditions were and had to try to kind of blend together, on the one hand, elements of the kind of elite justice with ideas about consistency and rationality with the traditional um, patterns that you had in the countryside of certain things being considered fairly justified. You know, like if you committed a crime while you were drunk, it was a mitigating factor in a way that it wasn't in the elite system, at least to not, that, not to that extent. Um, so in that way, they were outside the system, right? But the, the system and the uh, judicial elites were gradually trying to pull them back toward um, kind of elite Europe- Europeanized, Westernized, systematized law. And to some extent, over the next several decades, that begins to happen. That is to say that the uh, Volus courts begin to impose a kind of more um, standardized law on the one hand, uh, and also um, many more peasants seek to join or to enter into the regular courts whenever they can. And one way in which they certainly could was any time there was uh, a difference between them and someone who was subject to those official higher-level courts, right? And so in that sense, you know, the peasants were outside the system, but also gradually drawing more toward it, and then also under some circumstances were actually part of the official or higher-level standardized, westernized judicial system.
1: The reason I ask about that is in my research on the Stalinist constitution, um, I studied the... Uh, what is it? The popular discussion of the constitution. And one of the things proposed by the Stalin constitution is a restoration of habeas corpus rights. And one of the things that surprised me is that the people of Kirov absolutely do not want habeas corpus. They really do not think that people should have to get a warrant. They want the ability to arrest any sort of criminal on the spot without any sort of interference. And It's interesting to see that Moscow is trying to impose these sort of westernized, more liberalized values, and they get absolutely rejected.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Um, Habeas corpus wasn't actually introduced uh, into Russian, into the Soviet era until after the fall of communism, right? So, I mean, the extent to which the Stalin authorities really wanted to... (laughs) Well, I mean, it's codified
1: in the Constitution, and I have found evidence in 37 and 38, where people from the regional level are going after local officials for violating people's constitutional rights with illegal search and seizure. For example, to meet a flax procurement quota, they simply go through everybody's house and steal all their flax. They take it from their pillows, from their bed sheets, from any sort of thing that they have. And they are written up by opcom inspectors for violating these people's constitutional rights. So it is enshrined in the Constitution. And at some level, higher level officials are trying to implement it But the local level, it seems to have almost no residence.
0: I got you. Well, that's that's really interesting. Um, It was not a tradition in uh, peasant culture to believe in such niceties. I mean, there was a general sense that it was obvious what was right and just and what was wrong. And uh, so that's why in the traditional peasant uh, or customary law, the idea was that, uh, you know, people would just get together and they would talk about it and they would decide, OK, this person is guilty. Let's punish them. How are we going to do it? Uh, let's flog them, <laughs> you know, and uh, and or let's say somebody committed some sort of a crime or offense against another peasant. Everyone gets together. They discuss things. They kind of vote essentially unanimously. And they agree that the person who was offended gets to to, to punch the other guy in the face, the other guy in the face and uh, brings some, uh, you know, buckets of vodka to distribute to everybody. And then everything is, you know, sort of moral order is restored. Right? I mean, there's more- Yeah,
1: I see that continuing in the 30s. It it does seem to be more about fairness and community order than individual rights. So you also talk about Russia's preference for authority figures over the rule of law. Um, Would you like to elaborate maybe a little bit on that? Has that always been part of Russian legal proceedings? Well, it certainly was before the time of Peter
0: the Great. So, and that's traditional and natural. I mean, I think all of Europe had this general sense that there were certain elites that had authority and other people, ordinary people, peasants didn't, especially during the Middle Ages when many ordinary people were uh, serfs and, and could not imagine uh, having rights against the nobles. But there was also more of a fight for rights in European culture from even the Middle Ages. So the towns claimed to have rights. um, After the Black Death, when labor was scarce, many nobles would offer certain rights or certain contracts, certain pledges or privileges to their labor uh, in order to entice them into service. So that's sort of tendency was already kind of gradually growing, beginning even in the Middle Ages. In Russia, uh, there wasn't such a tendency uh, until much later. And, and part of it had to do with the fact um, that the, the state, I mean, so there was a lot of land and the state needed service from the, uh, the nobles. And the nobles couldn't grant that service unless they had control over their peasants. And so from early times, you know, even way before Peter the Great, there was a tendency of the state to confer uh, and to grant pretty much total control over uh, the serf population so that those nobles would have the ability to serve the state and the military for the most part, right? So, So that mentality went way back. Now, Peter comes to power in the early 1700s, and he's Basically, uh, wants to import European ideas because he has taken a trip. Like as soon as he becomes uh, sole czar in the late 1600s, he in 1696-97 uh, he goes to to Russia, to Western Europe for 18 months, and he travels all around and he sees, wow, they're so rich, they're so powerful, they're so well organized. We've got to do all of this, right? And so he imports ideas workers uh concepts structures institutions you know kind of approaches laws etc you know uh, i mean everything he can take he he does and but what he doesn't take um the one thing that he doesn't incorporate into his westernizing program is limits on his power right i mean he's he has this idea that Russia is this kind of, you know, chaotic, old-fashioned place, and it needs to have order imposed upon it. And if he does not impose that order, it's not going to get imposed, and Russia is just going to slide back into sloth and disorganization, right? So, I mean, he might even recognize that in those countries there are certain limits on constitutional authority, but in in Europe, uh, but he also both consciously and and probably unconsciously, holds that he can't institute that in Russia, right? So over the course of the entire uh, 18th century, there's still this sense that it's really the state, and especially the autocrat, the czar, the emperor, and empress, or empress depending, right? Um, Who is the one who's likely to be the most progressive, most forward-looking, the most uh, reformist, And so it is really, it, it's just continuously all throughout the 18th century, it's the rulers and their closest advisors who are the ones who are making Russia more, you know, kind of European, more um, reformed, more developed in all sorts of ways. So, so Elizabeth uh, Petrovna, middle of the 1700s, she um, abolishes capital punishment, right? I mean, more or less. In the late 1700s, it's Catherine the Great, um, who, from the top down, in 1785, institutes or issues two charters, one to the nobility and one to the town dwellers, which grant them protections, and to some extent, a kind of habeas corpus, a kind of uh, inviolability of the person, especially to the nobility. For the first time, it makes their property inviolable. It can't be seized by the state. I mean, in practice, it mostly wasn't, but it could be before. And it can't for the nobles after 1785. Um, But at the same time, at the exact, you know, at the same moment that the nobles are receiving these grants of privilege, immunity, and right. So therefore, it is the golden age of the nobility, as it is sometimes called in the scholarship, At that very same moment, it was really the apogee of the uh, serf-owning system. So it was nothing like a golden age of the peasantry, right? I mean, so there were no rights. The peasants had no rights. Uh, The serfs had no uh, dispensations, no immunities of any kind. And 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 in principle, in practice, the serf-owners... And remember, the the serfs were not liberated until 1861. The serf owners throughout the next many decades could murder their serfs and pretty much with impunity. Now, they rarely did so because it was uh, against their economic interest, but they could do it. They could flog them. They could make all sorts of decisions for them. They could break up families, et cetera, et cetera, similar to the slave owning system in the American South.
1: Well, I remember they actually would register the number of souls a a noble person owned.
0: Yeah, right. That was always creepy. That's absolutely true. Now, in reality, I mean, so it's even kind of legally somewhat ambiguous because it's not legally clear that the surf owners owned the serfs actually i mean there's no there's no text anywhere that states yes they own them and there's no text that states that they don't own them there's sort of a kind of understanding within the law that they don't really own them per se they own the land and the serfs are attached to the land the land the serfs can't leave the land very easily and so in that sense they 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 do own them but in in actual legal fact they don't you know but they still treat them um, in a in a proprietary way and in a um, authoritarian uh, way, and that sort of mentality, right? And so, and within the countryside itself, within the uh, communities of the serfs, it's also very hierarchical. It was very hierarchical before the liberation of the serfs. That is to say that there were um, the heads of household. The male heads of household who were the deciders, and they would get together at assemblies, and they would decide things for everybody else. and there was a uh, a set of privileges that you had if you were um, a member of that set, that is the leadership of the village. um it was typically older men, and they kind of lorded it over everybody else. This began to break down not immediately after the uh, abolition of serfdom in eighteen sixty one but later. Um, In the later 1800s, when um, market relations began to influence economic development in the countryside, so that more people were able to leave, more young people in particular, were able to leave the the village, go into the city, work in factories or on railroads or in other um, places, they would then meet others, they would become more kind of independent-minded Um, They would have a little bit of money. They knew about how things worked in the cities. They had a more kind of broad-minded view of the world. They'd come back to the countryside, and they wouldn't be willing to put up with that kind of hierarchical mentality. Um, And they inculcated those kinds of independent-minded ideas to the rest of the village, and so there was a gradual kind of breaking down of that mentality. But it took a – you know, it wasn't like there was a real – Sort of acceptance of um, of a broad democratic understanding of, of relations within the village. I mean it's true that that when nineteen seventeen happened and the um, you know the, 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 the czar fell in early nineteen seventeen and in the country so so the the army you know half disbanded, uh, soldiers flee from the the front that's uh, collapsing. And go back to the villages where they are. Uh, they participate in the summer of 1917 in a redistribution of land. Land had been somewhat accumulated in larger holdings by some uh, peasants, sometimes called kulaks, who were supposed to be somewhat, you know, they were richer or better off than others. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it was actually pre-1917. I mean, it really, they, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks were drawing on a pre-1917 mentality a kind of um, hostility and envy toward uh, people who were better off now those people who are better off were not you know big massive farmers you know with hundreds of acres they might have uh, 50 acres of land they might have a dozen cows they might have you know a certain amount of you know maybe a two-story brick building you know a for, for home for their for their for their residents and stuff like that and they were you know, they were considered to be sort of—they were lent—they were money lenders. They would often lend money to to the peasants in in harsh times. They would also help the pez, the, the poorer peasants. They expected obedience and sort of deference from those guys, etc. Anyway, in 1917, all of those better-off peasants were kind of—you know—wiped out. Not now; they were not killed, but the, their holdings were divided. They were seized, just as the as the holdings of the great landlords the big landowners, the noble landowners, the remaining ones, even though they had been in decline uh, since, you know, 1900 for sure. Um, and especially after the revolution of 1905 that drove a lot of nobles out of the countryside. Anyway, in 1917, um, these local communities come together and they say, okay, let's distribute all this land. There's, there are land holdings, you know, people have got 50 acres, let's divide it up so that everyone's got an equal amount, you know, everyone's got like a five acres or 10 acres, depending on the place. And, and, and everyone has one cow, you know, no one's going to have 10, et cetera. So, um, so that happened in, you know, we don't know a hundred percent exactly how it happened everywhere because there were no, you know, no, not everyone was writing about what was going on, but we have a general sense, um, that it was a fairly democratic process as there was a lot of democratic processes throughout Russia in 1917 in all sorts of uh, venues, uh, in parishes, you know, uh, church uh, members would get together and they would make decisions, you know, about what to do. Should they, should we try to elect our priest? You know, should we ask for a dispensation uh, from the church, you know, to remove this priest, et cetera, et cetera, you know, in every walk of life in the factories, obviously, and in, in uh, other workplaces, in government agencies, civil servants, everyone was <laughs> organizing in a kind of democratic way. So somehow in 1917, um, A tendency that had already been kind of underway, as I say, since the late 1800s on the countryside comes to full fruition and seems to have worked into kind of an anarchic grassroots democracy, right? But obviously, I mean, as soon as the Bolsheviks are able to establish their uh, one party dictatorship um, fairly quickly after the Civil War, that is... Mostly rooted out. I mean, there are sort of vestiges of it that remain in the um, in the Soviets that do have something to say at the local level and do, as you were saying before, protest. For example, in the early uh, 1920s or in the Civil War era, they're protesting um, against the um, coercion and violence of the secret police, the Cheka, and they bring Mm -hmm. their uh, cases to the uh, party officials um, in Moscow. You know, and they complain and some pushback happens and the secret police loses you know some authority you know back and forth stuff like that so it, it's not like the system ever becomes a monolith right I mean it, it never did oh, God, no. yeah it was never I mean so so the concept of totalitarian is not, ridiculous it, well I mean look it's it's not there was a totalitarian impulse and there was a totalitarian desire to control everything that could be controlled in practice it wasn't
1: I don't even know know that that existed because it seems to me that a lot of times the, the Bolsheviks had a democratizing impulse that was often foiled by local officials. I mean, I see, for example, on the collective farms, they're supposed to have democratic meetings. They're supposed to elect the collective farm chairperson. They are supposed to vote if people are being accepted or expelled. And oftentimes that is foiled by local people in positions of power that want their person in charge or would like their friend to run the collective farm so they can get, for example, extra meat, extra dairy products, extra honey, Um, So I think that the Bolsheviks in general have sort of a democratizing impulse. Um, And as for the, the cows thing, they did not do that very well. I mean, I find as late as 37 and 38, there are huge problems with some families having two or three cows on a collective farm, which they're not supposed to have, and bunches of families having zero cows. And I know there's been recent research done that this sort of stratification existed even before the emancipation of the serfs. Um, Someone looks at the Sheremetiv holdings and actually noticed that a lot of people opt out of these Tharista positions, these village elder positions, because they're not very well paid. They're not very well respected. But in the same village, you have people that are running their factories, you know, dyeing works or some sort of textile industry in the case of the Sheremetivs. And they have French furniture, a two-story house. They have have, you know, dining ware and good stuff. And then you have poor, lazy people who are living in a dirt hut, and they found it was very difficult to get the peasants who were doing well to help the poor people. This idea of sort of this communal lifestyle, some recent scholarship has thought maybe is a German import that was imposed by a German ethnographer who came and did very cursory work, did not speak any Russian and came up with a sort of uh, utopian idea modeled after German experience rather than being anything that actually existed.
0: Baron von, von Hochhausen. Is that? Yes.
1: Yes. I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> but
0: I, mean, I, I, mean, I do think because I've done a fair amount of research on, uh, the countryside and and in, before 1917, and I don't think it's just from him, but from much other scholarship. There, I mean, I suspect it was case by case, and and just as it was, um, and you would expect this, right? We've got uh, thousands of landowners, and some of them are cruel, and some of them are decent, right? Uh, some of them, um, you know, tell their some of them are absentee, or many, many of them are, and some of them are not. Some of the bailiffs are cruel, and some of the bailiffs are are, are fairly humane, right? I mean, so I don't know that, that there's any general – I mean, let's just say I suspect that before 1917, on average, the better-off peasants, kulaks, um, and landowners helped their uh, less fortunate – uh, community members sometimes didn't, other times, uh, and there might be a preponderance of one or the other regionally or in different time slices.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing with Russia is it's you know one sixth of the world's land mass. It's a massively varied experience. For example, in the Kirov region, there was no serfdom. We are an utterly crappy, uh, agriculturally insignificant area, and no one wanted land here, so. As a result, they have, for example, early peasant participation in zemstvos because there are no landholders to do it. And so peasants are very involved in education early on as well.
0: Wow. Yes, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. As regards the the Bolshevik ideal of kind of imposing democratization down the social hierarchy, it's, isn't it the case that the Bolsheviks I mean, I I know that their ideology was very liberationist in all sorts of ways, but I think it's, it's also the case that up and down the system, there was maybe more lip service paid to this and more of a desire to impose democratization on those guys over there than rather on oneself.
1: I think a lot of it simply has to do with the practicality of imposing democratization. I think, uh, and Sean Gillery has done an excellent piece on this uh, about the Komsomol and how they simply tried to democratize but didn't have the resources. You know, you have young men usually with a elementary school education trying to run vast tracts of territory. I mean, to some of the regions I look at in Kirov, you have, you know, 86 co- or, um, Communist Party members trying to run an entire district with bicycles on terrible roads, you know, they simply, even if they wanted to spend time and convince people that they should participate in these various democratic campaigns, that they should do this, do that, they don't have the energy or the resources to do it. So I think a lot of times this sort of um, authoritarian impulse is simply because it's easiest and it gets the job done. And it does seem to really frustrate the people in Moscow when they do that.
0: Right. No, that, that makes sense. And and there are also, I think, within the culture, and this gets back to your original question about the authoritarian impulse and, and deference to authority, um, there does seem to be in Russian history a lot of tendency for some people to have a lot more initiative than others. Um and the and so I could also imagine that the leadership might be receiving orders, you know, be sure to conduct democratic discussion, but they're worried that if they do, then there's going to be just such a chaotic, uh, you know, set of voices raised and nothing will get done. And, and people, you know, just the way people feel about meetings, oftentimes, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll Well, yeah, I mean, Getty talks about, this um, in 37 with uh, regard to the Constitution, how negative reaction about, you know, multi-candidate elections in the regions is one of the reasons that the Constitution got violated so early. People were concerned if you open up the forum for this sort of discussion, they will lose power. And I see this in Kirov. You know, they're concerned because you do have uh, individual smallholders, former kulaks becoming rural Soviet chairman and then inviting their friends into the administration and basically setting up. These little family circles that oppose the local communists, and when there's like you know 75 of you and you're trying to run this entire forested district, that is a real problem.
0: Well, and that actually leads me to another important element of what I would consider Russian political culture, um, going back to Peter and going right up to the present, and is something I talk a lot about in the book, and that has to do with the personalization of authority the personalization of power and institutions. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, let us not have a government of men, but of laws. And Peter certainly, Peter the Great in the early 1700s, certainly believed in the law. He wanted a kind of rule of law. um, And he paid a lot of attention in legislating uh, to writing uh, you know, kind of little prefaces to sort of every law of any consequence that was issued in, in his name um, to to kind of explain, you know, here's the purpose. this is why we're doing this, right? He wanted to kind of draw people along with reason and not just with force. Um, but the fact is that he also thought that his, like he was the only if he was the only one capable of dragging Russia into the modern age. Uh, He was the one with the most energy. He was most dedicated. Most of the people within his, in the polity and the culture were kind of more old fashioned. Many of them were wedded to the old uh, Muscovite folkways. And so in practice, you know, I mean, he insisted that his will be enforced um, and that nothing constrain it, right? That he's not under the law. He never thought of himself as under the law. Right? He was the law. He was the font of all law, and he wanted that law to be respected down the whole hierarchy. And I think that's um, a, a way of a way of thinking of most of Russia's rulers, um, with some exceptions. So, in the case of Alexander II, I mean, when he instituted the judicial reform in 1864, he may not have known what he was doing, but what he did was he instituted an independent judiciary. Now we talk about, in Western societies, uh, the separation of powers, right? Uh, And so you've got the judicial, executive, and legislative branches of government, and each one of them should be sort of balancing the other. And that had not ever been the case in Russia. In Russia, before 1864, every bit of power was in the hands of the sovereign. Executive, judicial, legislative, all of it. In Western Europe, um, the judicial branch began to be separated out already in the Middle Ages, already in the 1100s and 1200s. Right, legislative authority didn't break out away until um, the Glorious Revolution of, uh, in England in 18, I mean 1688. A little bit earlier, to some extent, in Holland or in Switzerland. And then afterwards, uh, more more generally, although with a lot of uh, fights in Russia, that didn't happen until 1906, right? So Russia is definitely lagging, um, and there is this this general sense that the 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 ruler is jealous of his or her power and doesn't really want to share it. And as I say, Alexander II kind of you know probably didn't realize what he was doing because when there came up some cases uh, that he wanted to influence. Uh, such as the Vera Zasulich trial in 1878, when she uh, attempted to assassinate a government official in St. Petersburg. It was clear there were witnesses. Everybody knew. I mean, it was was just obvious that she had done it. Um, And she didn't deny that she did it in court. But there was a trial by jury, and the jury decided to listen to the eloquence of her lawyer, who argued that she was doing it for moral reasons against an unjust system, and so they they ex- exonerated her, right? Um, so that was troubling to Alexander II, and yet he did not roll back the judicial reform. He could have. He had all legislative authority in his hands. He could have abolished the independent courts. He didn't. So he was, in other words, wedded to continuing on that path of gradual constitutional development, right? All of that, of course, was swept away by the Bolsheviks. They had an ideology of Um, democratization. They had an ideology of liberation. But in practice, they did not want to share power, and they controlled everything from the top. There were efforts, of course, under Gorbachev to loosen things up, then under Yeltsin even more so. um, Under Putin, to some extent, also as well. I mean, so he argues in favor of a dictatorship of the law. He wants the law to be binding on everyone, right? Um, And yet in practice, it never works out i mean the 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 judiciary is more independent now under um putin than it was during certainly under stalin probably under khrushchev and brezhnev but it's not independent as it was under alexander ii under alexander iii or under nicholas ii before 1917. and then go ahead i'm sorry
1: so let's talk about that idea. The idea, I mean, from a Bolshevik point of view, I know why they didn't want an independent judiciary. They saw basically these independent sort of bourgeois style institutions as weapons of the ruling class. And they thought that we should simply return to the sort of revolutionary legality where you rule by sort of your revolutionary gut. What all did they sweep away from, you know, the czarist gradual liberalization and implication implementation of European standards. How much of that did they really destroy?
0: Well, uh, okay. So one thing is, is I mean, the entire judicial system that was established by Alexander II in 1864 included a, a hierarchical set of independent courts with uh, judges that could not be removed um, except by their peers for, you know, real cause like corruption and stuff like that, right? There was uh, trial by jury. So that um, before 1864, basically what you had to do if you wanted to convict somebody, you're a prosecutor. And so you write up a uh, bill of indictment and you present that to the judge. The judge looks at the bill of indictment and makes a decision. There is no such thing as an, adv- as an advocate or a lawyer for the defense on the other side who's able to argue verbally in front of the judge. Make, I mean, he can make some points, but generally speaking, he can't. The judge is really f- focusing on the written material. Um, and he, and the no major case, no cross-examination is made. Beginning in 1864, there are jury trials. Um, and so what has to happen is that both the prosecutor and the defense attorney have to make their case before impartial, ordinary people, right And so you've got to convince them. It's not just a document that you've drawn up beautifully and very eloquently. you've actually got to convince people. now you can do that obviously in uh, what one might say is kind of like psychological. you can psych people out and you can use emotion the way that you know prosecutors and and defense attorneys often do and so it's not it's imperfect, but you still have to make a case based on the merits to people, and not one person, but 12 people, um, and try to win them over to your side. Under the Bolsheviks, that was not the case. Now, it's true that they what they had was they had typically a three-panel uh, set of, of judges in the district courts, right, throughout most of Soviet history. and And so there was a senior judge, and then there were two ordinary people judges. Those ordinary people judges could stand in sort of like the uh, jury, but the difference is that they were very deferential to the senior judge. And it's really the senior judge who knows what the government wants. I mean, all throughout Soviet history, obviously, if it's a lower level case, and it doesn't, you know, there's no no big uh, con, um, concerns at, at stake. And there's no official who's taken an interest. There's no official who feels like he's going to lose out if uh, the if the case goes one way or the other. If it's an ordinary case of some sort of theft, then someone could potentially get a fairly decent trial throughout the Soviet era, right? But if there's any kind of question, if there's any notoriety, if there's any scandal, any any politics attached to it, then it becomes very difficult um, for a person to get a, a fair trial. And it would have been much easier, almost certainly, for 12 ordinary people to have to be won over. By the prosecutor for the case to you know, achieve, uh, achieve guilt. The other thing is that before 1917, there was much more enshrined the presumption of innocence. Before, 19, before 1864, there was no presumption of innocence. Afterwards, there was. It was imperfect, but it was stronger than anything there was after 1917. There's, no, there's this kind of accusatorial bias, as uh, scholars call it, where there's you're both before 19, uh, 1864 and after 1917, there's just a sense that, you know, you, you, um, the case is being brought on good faith by the prosecution, and they're probably right. There's no reason for them to be lying, you know, and they're kind of, you know, they're on the right side, they're part of the system, and therefore we're going to defer to them. And then another part that's also lost is the independent bar. This is such an important institution. That is to say that in 1864, um, uh, advocates, lawyers were allowed to join together in communities and collectives, like unions, right? I mean, they're like these organizations, the Bar Association of various localities and nationally, where they're able to, you know, reinforce each other and strengthen their kind of clout within the system to form yet another element. I mean, that's what you get in a kind of a westernized society is you've got a lot of different interest groups that are able to... So it's not just the, the separation of powers and the balance of power between judicial, executive, and legislative, but also all kinds of institutions that are separate from the government, NGOs of different kinds, right? So this bar had the right, you know, to reinforce itself and to work together and collect funds they collected funds for example to help uh, political prisoners and all sorts of other stuff um, and it and it gave them a kind of prestige and a clout in the system within the society that made it possible for them to become major figures politically and socially and culturally in Russia before 1917 um, so so all of the political uh, prisoners all the political, Um, accused, that were brought to various trials. After the Zasulich trial and another couple of trials that didn't go well for the government, the government started sending those cases to military courts. But you could still have an advocate. You could still have um, a member of the bar uh, that would would advocate for you, right, And, and, and insist that legal procedure be followed. After 1917, there was legal procedure. There were the, you know, the code of criminal procedure, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff existed. And you did have advocates, but they didn't have the same clout. They didn't have the same prestige, the same independence. and couldn't argue and defend um, their clients as well as they did before 1970.
1: They weren't very well educated either, if I recall. That One of the problems was that they wanted to deprofessionalize all of the judicial organizations. So you have... Basically, people plucked out of the factory and said, hey, guess what? You're now a judge or a lawyer or something, and you get to decide cases. Uh, this is Kr- Krilenko's revolutionary legality, if I remember correctly. That this was a huge problem because you you don't have any sort of consistency or any real understanding of law or legal proceedings because these people have no training at all.
0: No, you're absolutely right. That was certainly – I mean so – so you mentioned this idea of revolutionary consciousness. So generally speaking, so that's what Jefferson, in a sense, was arguing against. Let's have a, a, a government of law, not of men. If you're governed by revolutionary consciousness, it's really individuals. It's individual people who are making judgments. According to Marxist ideology and the Bolshevik-Leninist interpretation of it, there was a kind of world spirit that's working its way through history, and it's guiding people Um, based on kind of underlying principles within the kind of, it's not just the zeitgeist. It's like, it's like, as I say, it's like a world spirit. I mean, he sort of really does take the Hegelian concept, but he calls it all material. But it doesn't sound material, it really sounds spiritual, right? It's like a kind of a, a force. And this force is supposed to be guiding individuals to make correct judgments about guilt or innocence, about right and wrong, and all that kind of stuff. And Frankly, it doesn't. It really can't work. Not with humans. I mean, humans are just not able to do that. You know, kind of individually, you get, you get too much power to one person. Uh, it goes to their heads, etc., cetera, It's et cetera. Much better to diffuse that power more broadly, and that's why the twelve members of the jury are so important. Um, and and so so that's also so, so what's swept away is this kind of rule of law and procedure that is followed independently followed impersonally, based not on my judgment, you know, whatever, whether it's guided by revolutionary consciousness or not, but it's, I'm a single individual making a judgment, right? But if you've got more individuals, and if you've got a whole collective that has put together, you know, kind of the procedural norms of how this is supposed to be carried out, and if you've got experts who know those procedures and apply them correctly, then you're more likely to achieve justice, it seems to me, than if you're just sort of doing it in a hodgepodge way, the way you say, plucking people out of the factories. This changed, incidentally, gradually.
1: Yeah, I know. Right- Vyshinsky actually introduced this idea of a professional um, judiciary again. And some people argue that the Stalin Constitution was sort of the uh, return to this codified, normalized system.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, part of the problem then is that in 19... 19- uh, 37 and 1938, thousands of judicial personnel are killed. Um, and and so then they've got to sort of backtrack again after that in the late 1930s to try to build up the cadre of judicial uh, experts. And then the war happens. And then thousands and thousands more die, die and are killed, right? So, so then it's it's interesting that in, in 1949, it's really a big turning point, in this regard, uh, concerning judicial procedure, because a number of, of rulings come down um, from the Politburo, really from Stalin, right, saying, from now on, we're going to hold you to account, your judicial personnel. Um, you're going to be held to certain norms, and these norms are biased again toward the prosecution. <laughs> so the point is that if you if you exonerate uh, too many people, it's going to be considered that you're doing something wrong. And that, in fact, you should get as many convictions as possible. So the prosecution is dying to get uh, convictions. The judges don't want to make the prosecutors unhappy. The judges, you know, go along with the prosecution for the most part. There's this accusatorial bias that continues. And so the number of, of, um, uh, of acquittals plummets to a tiny, tiny fraction Sort of like you know, less than one percent of people are acquitted, starting in 1949 and going forward, for the most part throughout the Soviet era, that balloons out somewhat under Yeltsin and early Putin, and now again it's up. You know, I mean, it's it's very very low, sort of half a percent of acquittals, et cetera. I mean, it's just this kind of tendency that within the system to think that pres- the judicial procedure. The goal of judicial procedure is to achieve a kind of tying up of the knot, you know, <laughs> tying up of loose ends, you know, avoiding uh, mess rather than um, of achieving um, justice, of achieving, you know, making sure no one is, is um, put away who's not guilty, making sure that you find true guilt, true innocence and stuff like that. That's what a justice system is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to be impartial, predictable, fair. And, you um, and it's supposed to be seeking to get at guilt or innocence. And it's hard to manage that. And, mo- and many systems around the world don't do it. It's not like Russia was so unusual. Oh, you know, like Russia is, is different from every place else. It's, it's rather that the European countries were more unusual uh, for having achieved a greater kind of uh, achievement in judicial procedure that was fair and partial and, and predictable and regular. And that the and the and the Russians were recognizing, you know, you, you know, from the time of Peter, to some extent, and certainly strongly under Alexander II and the and the great reforms, um, moving in that direction and trying to reinforce and strengthen it. By the way, one of the most important laws, uh, or bills rather, in this uh, direction that was uh, debated in the Duma. Before World War One was the law on the invi- invi- or a bill or various bills on the inviolability of the person. Both the government and the major parties in the Duma agreed that such a law would be beneficial for the country. Right, it's good to have you know a predictable, you know, it's like well it's habeas corpus essentially. You know, you cannot be put away unless there's probable cause. And no one can be arrested without, you know, re- due process and all this other stuff. or You can't be held without due process. Um, it was not adopted until um, January of 1917. <laughs> and it was, supposed to be, it was supposed to be implemented in June of 1917. And it was sort of vaguely by the provisional government, right? But, I mean, at that point, everything was like, oh,
1: oh. I assume it was ineffective at that yeah, point. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's just so much criminality Um that's that's make, wreaking mayhem uh, for, you know, because when the Bolsheviks, well, before the Bolsheviks, I'm sorry, um, when the liberals came to power um, in 1917 after the Tsar or the czar fell, they come to power. Well, the, the here's how it goes. The masses come into the streets. The army mutinies in Petrograd. The czar is convinced by the frontline generals that he should abdicate for the good of the war war cause. He abdicates. He thinks his brother, Michael, is going to take it over. Michael rejects it. <laughs> Nicholas also abdicates in favor uh, for his son as well. So then suddenly there's no czar. The provisional government is established. The Soviet also happens in parallel simultaneously. And among the first acts of the provisional government, not of the Soviet, the provisional government, this is mostly all liberals except for Kerensky, he's the only socialist in the government. And and they abolish the secret police. They abolish the regular police. They abolish all of the uh, administrative apparatus, including the governors who are so important throughout the empire. Um, they abolish uh, the emergency legislation. They release all political prisoners. They release all sorts of other people who are, are held on uh, administrative process, many of them uh, ordinary criminals or people who are deemed ordinary criminals, right? Um, they uh, many uh, prisons are, are um, stormed by crowds and prisoners are released. Um, and so there's just over the course of the next several months, there's really a high level of criminality and there's no police force because the new police force, which is supposed to be kind of a grassroots militia, never gets off the ground or gets off the ground only here and there. And And the only places that you can feel relatively safe are in the worker quarters where you've got red guards who are p- patrolling and maintaining order. So all sorts of people are really just, I mean, there's so much crime that's happening. So many more murders were happening during those months than there had been even during the war uh, in 1916, 1915, or, or before the war. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, I mean, the system was just completely overwhelmed.
1: So do you think Russia tends to uh, favor stability over rule of law? Because it seems like what you're saying here is that they actually favored, you know, red guard or Bolshevik intervention because you could keep people safe, as opposed to this sort of um, idea of habeas corpus. And I certainly see that with the, the Stalinist period.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I think that's absolutely true. I, I think that sort of ordinary people, for the most part, don't see the benefit. Of kind of legal niceties, they have a they have a kind of community, uh, communal, traditional, customary sense of what is right and wrong. They think they know, uh, and they think they can work it out, and they just wish that that stuff would be taken care of. So that's why, for example, during the summer of 1917, when there's a lot of criminality uh, in the streets of Petrograd, <clears throat> there are also many uh, lynchings. Uh, what the Russians called samasut, right? You know, self justice. <clears throat> and so people are just taken and they're beaten to death in the street because they were caught uh, allegedly pickpocketing. So the idea of, you know, that, or that you have to follow all this procedure, right? So one of the big bones of contention before 1917 was over in the countryside was over horse stealing. Now, obviously, if you're in the countryside and you're a peasant, someone steals your horse and it could really destroy your livelihood. And so you think of horse stealing as. A terrible crime. But of course, if you're living in Petrograd or St. Petersburg, of course, uh, before the war, you don't think that's, that horse stealing is like that. I mean, horse stealing is bad. It's a kind of gr- maybe grand larceny, but it's not like a murder. Uh, and yet, if you're a peasant, you might think of it as like a murder because someone is maybe taking your livelihood away and your family's going to starve. So, so they did not like the way that the official justice dealt with horse thieves a horse thief, as they were concerned first, so far as they were concerned, should be put to death because this was somewhat such an absolute menace, right? So in that sense, the legal niceties were not what they wanted. They wanted a kind of order that came down to their sense of kind of uh, moral economy, as scholars sometimes say. Um, And sort of the rule of law is what you hanker after when you've reached a certain level of comfort and, and organization in your life and structure and all of that stuff. And that was really only, uh, in the, in the cities among educated people. I mean, those folks, obviously the liberals, um, professionals, educated people in the cities, they did want the rule of law. They did not like the fact that they could be harassed, uh, merely for their political ideas. Right. Um, they, and, 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 they, and, and in the case of the countryside, you're no know, one's going to be harassed for political ideas, because for the most part, they don't have anything but monarchical and, and pro-Orthodox ideas. So they're not going to be harassed for that. They're not really worried. It's, it's in the cities where you might you know, be pursuing some kind of socialist idea. Um, you're not advocating violence, let's say, but yet you could still be put in jail. You could still be exiled to Siberia. And this is an outrage um, from their point of view. For the countryside, by the way, it's not an outrage because... Uh, Right down to 1901, when this right was abolished, um, all of the peasant communes, going back to a law of 1762, had the right to recommend the administrative exile for any person in their community that they thought was a a menace to their community. They didn't have to prove anything. They just had to, as a group, assert to the local official that this particular person is lazy, troublemaker, whatever. Whatever. And then that person would be shipped off to Siberia or wherever.
1: How do you see this applying to the uh, Yeltsin-Putin transition, this search for stability over the rule of law? Well,
0: in the case of Yeltsin, um, you know, obviously the sister, he dismantles communism and he makes it so that it really can't come back. He uh, breaks up the holdings of the Communist Party. He hands them over to various institutions. He sells them uh, to the highest bidder. He, you know, he sells them to people who support him. Uh, and so all this property is diffused uh, among what come to be known as oligarchs. Uh, and then there's a lot of lesser uh, people who are money makers and building up their fortunes. Um, it is a transitional period in the 1990s where a lot of people suffer because, um, You know, inflation takes away a lot of their uh, purchasing power. Their wages are not going up. People, especially on fixed incomes, people who are working for the state. And until that time, everyone worked for the state. So in this transition, a lot of people are suffering. And at the same time, uh, the the previous police apparatus was also semi-dismantled. The KGB is no longer... Given the same authority it had before, the name has changed, of course, to FSB. And, and, and criminality also flourishes, right, just as it did in 1917. I mean, so the number of murders and robberies and muggings and all this other stuff happens throughout, you know, hitting, hitting peaks in 1996, 97. It's in this time um, that everybody who's in business feels that they have to either pay protection for uh, to various, uh, mafia structures or hire their own, uh, private security forces. They hire those private security forces primarily from where else, obviously from the ministry of internal affairs, from the KGB, you know, people who know how to handle a weapon. Um, and, and so that, that becomes, you know, it's not the, it's not the most propitious time for the transition that Yeltsin is trying to make, because he is making efforts, right, to anchor the rule of law, he to, to creates a constitutional court um, that is uh, supposed to uh, judge the constitutionality of any action and any law. Um, the constitution is revised, of course, in 1993, uh, giving the president more power again. He's centralizing power in his hands, taking it away from the legislature. Right, this is again this other tendency. Um, But, you know, it's a a general gradual improvement. I mean, there's an awful lot more security of the individual. If you're not murdered by a robber or something, you have more right to express yourself, uh, to engage in activities that previously were criminal, such as uh, buying and selling goods, being uh, engaged in commerce. Um, You can criticize the system. You can write and publish pretty much what you want. You can organize non governmental organizations. Um, you know, it's, it's a flourishing of civil society. And that's a uh, challenged to some extent in 1998 when the ruble collapses. And again, people are hurt uh, economically, but then it's, things are sort of recovered for Russia um, after that over the next few years, because the price of oil spikes and Putin comes to power In 1991, uh, at a propitious time, because, uh, you know, he comes to power for the next decade. Oil prices are high. And this really, because Russia's biggest export um, is the export of oil and natural gas, um, this really helps economically. And so under uh, Putin, in the first years of his regime, he does believe in the law, the rule of law. He is a lawyer. His prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, is also a trained lawyer. Um, and they both believe in the rule of law. They both recognize that the rule of law is going to be important for encouraging business. I mean, business needs predictability in the law, as you can imagine. I mean if you're, if you're trying to plan out your business future and you're not sure what the rules are, it's hard to do, right? So and he wants to he wanted to encourage business, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in the early 2000s, he pours money. Um, like in a big way, into the judicial system, uh, hiring more officials, hiring more bailiffs uh, for security at the courthouses, um, buying computers for all the courts, uh, putting information about court decisions and other details about judicial matters on the internet. I mean, there's just a big effort at kind of beefing up and strengthening causing, helping the, the judicial systems flourish, right? Unfortunately, at the same time, and I have no idea what his intentions were. I mean, did he start out like, really, I want to build up a rule of law and, and somehow stumbles into corruption? Um, or was he really, you know, corrupt and wanting to line his pockets and those of his cronies from the beginning? And he, all, but at the same time, he also wants the rule of law to help the business to flourish because it is going to be better for the country. I don't really know. But I mean, what happens is that the the tendency of of law to be personal, partial, um, you know, connected to connections, like who you know, who you can get to press for your case behind the scenes before your trial, who you can get to give money to or threaten the judge. That, unfortunately, you know, was always the case in the Soviet era, especially in high profile cases, and it's returned. I mean, that, that's the way it is now. And and if there's, uh, you know, money to be made, or if there's a, a personal gain or loss involved in a particular case for some major official, crony, oligarch, or whatever, then that unfortunately is going to have a major impact on the outcome of the trial.
1: I think that's always been the case in Russia, though. To get something done, it's more important who you know than any sort of procedural norm. I mean, I see that in the educational sphere myself all the time, and I find it quite frustrating. But I think it's part of life here. Well, Jonathan, uh, I think we've taken up quite a lot of your time. So I'd like to thank you for coming. And maybe you'd like to just end by telling us any interesting projects you're working on now.
0: Uh, Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure for me as well. Um, What I'm doing, what I've been doing now is a historiographical project on the uh, sort of founding members of the Russian historical profession in the middle of the 20th century. So I wrote a piece uh, that came out last November in the Kritika Journal on what I call the Pleiad. It's five uh, historians who worked with Michael Karpovich beginning in 1946 at Harvard University. Uh, and that's uh, Leopold Hameson, Martin Malia, Richard Pipes, uh, Nicholas Reznovsky, and Mark Reif. Um, And currently I'm editing the uh, correspondence of Mark Riaff and Richard Pipes, which is uh, very interesting. It's coming out this coming fall with Brill. Uh, and then I'm carrying forward a uh, Intellectual biography of Richard Pipes, both as a um, scholar and as a uh, sovietologist. Well, a historian and a sovietologist. So that's that's my major project right now. It's actually extremely fun because I've never done biography before, and I've been getting just so much positive uh, feedback from scholars. I mean, <laughs> no one has ever been so interested uh, in my research uh, as they currently are. So I'm, I've been having a real blast.